You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. I've been speaking to Chris Freud for, I think, probably about 15 years, but his career goes back way before we started talking. At present, he's officially a portfolio manager in the balance and equity capability at 91 in Cape Town. Unofficially, this is his last day. And I suppose many people might have mixed feelings about leaving because of the, you know, the legacy issues and the friends you've made and the fun that you've had and the terrible times on occasion that you've had, I'm sure. (laughs) But on the other hand, you've got the lovely prospect of sitting down on Monday morning and saying, well, maybe I've made a mistake because I've got nothing to do. Not the case with Chris Freund, I don't think. And he's with me now. Chris, many congratulations. Thank you. I, I won't ask By you the way, having just me. to point out that I'm, I am yes. just retiring here. I'm not going to a competitor. I'm leaving, but I'm not sort of, you know, bagging off to a competitor. I'm just, I'm just, just had enough. But yes, sorry I interrupted you. No, you didn't at all. Um, I sense that you are looking forward to this, relishing this free time enormously. Because over the last couple of years, occasionally you've said, Lindsay, I'm feeling a little bit jaded. Sometimes things get on top of you. So you must be... You can't say that in front of your colleagues, but you must be thrilled to be going. You know, Lindsay, I will miss the people a hell of a lot uh, because asset management is a fantastic industry to work in. It's a bloody privileged place to work. You work generally with smart people. A lot of them um, have a good sense of humor. If you can make sure you watch who you let into your organization, <laughs> you, you interact at a senior level with uh, sort of economic uh, heads of the, uh, of the country, um, you get paid half reasonably if you do well. If you don't, you have quite a short career. Um, it's actually a fantastic industry working. I will miss the people here. I've made lots of good friends and, and worked with a lot of smart people, but I won't miss the work at all. Um, I know it might sound strange to say it. I've been at this for, I've been sort of trying to beat the averages for 30 odd years. And you, you enter this industry thinking, you know, watch out world, here I come, I'm going to show you the world's best investor. You normally studied value investing, Benjamin Graham or something at Varsity. And by the time you get out the other side like me, you, you think, I'm not sure I know anything. And it's hard to beat the markets and it's hard to beat your competitors because they're not idiots. And, um, you know, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. You hope, you know, on balance you do type of thing. But it's quite a stressful job um, managing billions of other people's retirement money. It's a hell of a responsible job. You, You can make a difference to people's lives. You can make a massive difference positively or negatively to people's comfort uh, and dignity when they retire. So it, it's a bit stressful every now and then because markets have, feels to me like every two or maximum three years, there's a bloody crisis, whether it's the global financial crisis or you know China falling over, a hard landing in China or Trump getting in or Brexit or COVID or the GFC or the European crisis in 2012. That's just the last 10 years, okay, or 12 years. Yeah. I've just quickly rattled off. So it does bring some stress. And and to me, there's like a sell-by button or date that that you can sort of take that level of stress for so long. And then you have to hand over the baton to, to younger, chirpier, more energetic people. And we've got a lot of those coming through. And I'm delighted to, to be handing over the baton to them. Okay, you mentioned at the beginning, you said, uh, you know, it's a fantastic place to work. I shall miss the people. If you do well, you get paid pretty well as well. If you do badly, then you, you have a short career. You must have done well because you've been there for 30 years and they don't suffer fools. And I know particularly <laughs> at 91, they don't suffer fools. Um, yeah, I've been at 91 so you've done well. Years, you've done well. Yeah. 
hmm. for 18 years here. Yes. And then 10 years at RMB before future growth in RMB. But as you say, 30 odd years managing other people's retirement money. And you've done well, is what I'm trying to get out of you. Otherwise, you would have been uh, kicked out. Oh, man, you know, the, the thing is, like every other fund manager, I've definitely had my periods of underperformance, you know. Um, you can underperform for one year and, and people sort of raise their eyebrows, but it's not too serious. But once your three-year numbers are below the average, and I haven't had too many sort of shockers, I haven't had too many fourth quartile periods in my career, but I've definitely had my share of, uh, you know, underperforming on a rolling three-year basis. Um, the sort of the football analogy is like a yellow card comes out. Eh? As yeah. soon as you below the averages over three years, and then if it stays there for very long, there's a red card. So I have avoided the red card, as you say. But I've had my fair share of periods underperforming. The last big one, I think, was 2016 I had. you know. So, yeah, I've snuck in occasionally, had a good year when I needed it. Um, clients have done okay on balance in the balanced space, excuse the pun. Um, I'm a big believer of, of balanced funds, you know, that have a mix of, of asset classes. They generally have delivered a good outcome for for retirement savers in south africa it's been hard the last couple of years i mean if you think about it last year i was just checked now the market the equity market is up four percent the bond market believe it or not was up four percent last year as well so so that wasn't a great year this year um our, our market's down our equity caps fix is down three percent bonds are about plus four as well so it's another tough year in terms of delivering inflation beating returns i mean we can talk about markets in a moment but I've enjoyed it. I've done half reasonably on balance to survive as long as I have. But it's time to hand over the baton, as I said. Okay. Just before we stop reflecting on your glorious career, both are, <laughs> a, from, a dozen years at RMV and 18 years at uh, 91, not including tomorrow. And uh, let's go back to 2016, for example, because that's the number I can mm. remember. And you, yeah. you said you're having a, a bad time. Do you ever sit down and say, you know, I've really cocked this one up. I shouldn't have bought this into this particular sector and I shouldn't have bought so soon because it's, it's dead. I, I should have sold my holdings uh, <laughs> for, the, for the strategy in this particular sector, uh, but I didn't. And that's leading to this underperformance. I've got it wrong. I've got to try and catch up now. Let's turn course, it around. Of, Do these, course, does these things go course. through your head? Absolutely. I mean, listen, this game, there's no certainties, okay? You deal in a world of probabilities. You never know when you buy a share or buy a bond or whatever. You never know for sure that it's going to work out well, you know, positively. What you try and do is enough work and have enough experience and look at it from enough angles to skew the probabilities in your favor. But that's all you're doing. You're trying to skew the probabilities from 50-50 to something more in your favor. That's the best you can do. So, the sort of probability, sometimes the, the negative outcome most certainly arises, sometimes because you haven't been smart enough, you haven't sort of thought about it, and sometimes just for left field events. You, know, you just get taken out by, I don't know, some planes fly into the World Trade Center, for example. This is mm. not because you haven't done your work. In either instance, or certainly the first one, you, you do reflect on sheep as I could have done things different here. What you mustn't do as an investment manager is question which altar you pray at. And so what I mean by that is, is you have to have an inherent belief system as to how you, deep down, think that you can beat the markets, all right? In my particular case, you and I have rabbited on for years about, I mean, I, I believe in the power of earnings revisions, which we won't explain what that is right now, but I have a particular deep-held belief. And when you have periods of underperformance, 
you can't start to question, well, I don't know if my sort of fundamental philosophy is right or not. I mean, if you start to do that, you, that's a very slippery slope and you should just exit left stage straight away. So I have never once, Lindsay, questioned that the way I look at investment markets is the wrong way. I mean, I've had John Green, my, my colleague, a senior colleague who said to me, you know, at various times at various strategy sessions we've had, you know, he's at a box and says, you know, we don't pay you to be third quartile. You know, that, that's life. You must just take the heat uh, when it comes in fund management. That's a bit unfair. Well, you might be saying that now, um, John, but uh, let's have a look at this, 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 this. this. But of course, you're too fine a person for that. But I I do want to talk about earnings revision and that strategy. Um, First of all, before I go broader, was the earnings revision a pillar of your investment philosophy? Did you bring that with you or was that something that was exclusive to 91? That's a damn good question. And I, I tell you, it's quite an interesting answer. So, First of all, as I said, I spent actually nine years at uh, RMB Asset Management before it was managed into the ground. But um, I eventually had to leave because I didn't, I didn't believe in the investment philosophy. As time went on, I became to believe less and less in the way the particular investment decisions were made. Now, I'm not saying it was wrong. I just just it didn't sit with me well. And I'm saying there's nothing more soul-destroying in, in investments than, than sort of making decisions within a framework that you really don't fully subscribe to. So, so I had to leave there. And I went to a quant shop within the first RAND group um, at that stage called Future Growth. And it was sort of ahead of its time. A quants, um, and there was, we ran what's called a multi-factor regression model to try and predict the market movements with a whole lot of variables, you know, value, growth, momentum, uh, quality, et cetera. And, and in, the, in the assessment of which variable was the most powerful, in predicting um, future market equity market movements, I increasingly sort of rested my gaze on this one variable of earnings revisions, uh, which just quickly is, you know, if a company is getting profit forecasts are being revised upwards, uh, there's a sort of a good probability that there will be so it's called autocorrelation and those upward revisions will continue and that share price will do well. There's a hell of a lot more to than that, but in a nutshell, that's it. So when I came to, which was that stage, Investec Asset Management, which was obviously 91 for the last uh, three and a half or so years, the earnings revisions was one of the sort of four variables they used um, in the system at the time. And I managed to convince my bosses um, that I would like to run money that focuses heavily on that area, but at the same time, not completely ignoring valuation, you know, because if you buy something that's patently overpriced, you will pay for it in the end with lousy returns. So my whole soundbite mantra was, buy companies with upward earnings revisions at reasonable valuation. And they let me sort of skew the, the sort of investment philosophy in that direction. Hmm, that's interesting. So you're the, almost the father of that particular philosophy, as you call it. Yes. Well, Hannes, Hannes van der Berg, my colleague that I'm handing over to, he's a great guy. He is. He actually calls me the godfather. He calls me the godfather of the earnings revisions philosophy. There you are, godfather, father, um, same thing. Just on future growth, I used to talk to them quite a lot. I found them very, very brainy. I think it was Andrew Cantor that I used to speak to the most. Do you remember him? 
at future growth? Absolutely. Absolutely. But he was on the bond side. I don't think future growth have had a big equity business since or for many years, but they've had a very successful bond business. Uh, I I think ours is better. We both, we compete in the credit area. Um, They're good. But we've got some incredible credit people here, you know, uh, debt credit uh, origination. So, yeah, I haven't I occasionally bumped into them. I actually bumped into them recently. But I'll always be grateful to future growth, not because we did particularly well as a commercial equity entity. We, we struggled, in fact, to to get a lot of clients to to sort of give us their money to manage because we regarded them as with this quantitative product and we were selling something called an enhanced index product, both of which were ahead of their time and we, we really couldn't get it over the line much. So when my great friend John Bickard, who I, I know you know well, yes, I do. when Bickard, when Vicky said to me 18 years ago, "Come on, Frandy, come come to Investec. We're looking for, we're looking for grey hair." And at that stage, my hair was already grey. You don't want to see it now. Um, and and I initially said no. You too kind. I initially said no, like an idiot. And then uh, my wife said to me, "Do you want to think about that?" And I went back to uh, John Bickle the next day. I said, "No, hang on, I've changed my mind. I actually want to." And and then I came over quite quickly. Very good. Okay, so you made that transition, uh, Investec Asset Management, as it was then, then to become 91. But again, let's go back to 30 years. And can you say with your hand on your heart, in all honesty, that what you, the, the principles you had 30 years ago, despite the extraordinary change in, in, in the markets, and uh, you, know, we look, you, you look today at the shares that dominate the major U.S. indices like the S&P, you know, the Magnificent Seven, as, mm-hmm. as they call them. You look back and you say, well, then what I'm doing now, if you'd had a chance to look to the future, you'd say, wait a second, what I'm doing now does not apply to the market in 2023. And this is you talking 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Does anything change despite the trends? No, absolutely nothing changes. Absolutely nothing changes because Good. I tell you why. Human nature doesn't change. Over thousands of years, human nature hasn't changed. And and a lot of a lot of investments performance is driven by human nature. So for example, the value philosophy, which is many people uh, use it very successfully. It's not particularly my my gig. Uh, I don't have enough patience to be a good value investor. I'm you know, too, too much of a short-term good times guy. But um, that works because, you know, you just need the patience to identify, you know, seriously undervalued shares, et cetera, et cetera. There's, and, and then they mean revert to uh, an average valuation. Uh, the earnings revisions philosophy works because of sort of the herding um, mentality that we have. We, we often like to be, what's it, you know, you'd almost rather be wrong with the crowd than stand out alone and, and be the risk of being right. Yes. So I don't think uh, anything's changed. What what you do get an appreciation of as you go on is that at any one time, there's no 100% one way that always works. What I've got a sense of is that I know in which market backdrops and environments our particular investment philosophy works better than other times. And I know that there's certain times when other investment philosophies will do well. So there have been times like in you know, like in 2016, I was just saying to you, I did badly then, you know, underperformed. But it was a period where deep value managers did very well. It was a perfect environment for deep value managers. So what you what you've got to do is say, look, this is just not my time in the sun. 
I believe over the whole cycle, uh, we'll do very well with our particular you know, investment belief system. But there are times when you know, other cycles are particularly propitious right then in the markets, and that's just life. But over a cycle, we'll do absolutely fine for our clients. So that's, I've, I've got a better appreciation of that over time. But in terms of like basics, not at all. It's, I would, wouldn't change a thing. Sorry, one last comment. One yes. last comment. And I, I know I've been going on too long. Is that a new investment person, you come out of Varsity and you actually don't know what you believe. It takes you a while to sort of work out, as I said, which altar you want to pray at. Because all you know is a bit of value investing, but you don't really know anything when you come out of Varsity and, or come, you start the world investing. It takes you quite a few years to say, okay, that's what really resonates with me, and then you go into it. Okay. Now, listening to what you've just said over the last uh, four and a half minutes or so, I do think that if you ever want to just keep your hand in, you talked about earlier on, you know, chirpy, bright young people coming in, it's time for me to stand aside. But I reckon that you could be a mentor to a select group of new people, a new intake at 91 or another company, it doesn't matter. And you could go through that stuff and you could maybe have a listen to the uh, podcast and take a few relevant chunks from it and say, this is this is what I think. And, and I think they would appreciate that because they may be clever, but I know that uh, it doesn't matter how many letters you've got after your name and whether you're a captain of the hockey team or whatever it was at whatever fancy school or institution you've been to, if I was looking to fill a position in the sort of role that you've been used to over three decades, I know that I'd rather have you with your head and experience and practical experience of, of highs and lows than some chap that's just come in there with a big smile and packed with theory. Yeah, I call it scars on my back. Uh, that's 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 the, another phrase for experience, you know, proper scars on your back. Look, I'll tell you, for the last 18 months at 91, this is exactly what I have been doing, in fact. I put a lot of people might have seen a presentation I put together, a lot of people in, in, this, sort of in, this, in this industry that you and I work in, uh, put together a presentation of uh, things that I think I've learned, uh, you know, managing other people's cash. And it is about sort of thoughts on investment philosophies and asset allocation happens to be a big uh, sort of interest of mine. I've always been a macro sort of guy. There are a lot of people who know a lot more about individual stocks than me, but I, I've always enjoyed the sort of interaction of economies with markets, and that's just sort of the whole macro asset allocation angle. So I've put together a presentation on, on the, the world according to Stoffel in terms of macros as well. And I've given this presentation internally to at 91 many, many times, and in fact to quite a lot of our clients who were vaguely interested in things like that. So absolutely, I don't mind, but I, I, I don't think I've got the holy grail in investments at all. I've just got a and other perspective on on investments and people should like i guess take as many perspectives as they can and then they make up their own mind as to what what lands with them uh, and just one more i'm sorry i'm reminiscing but things keep on popping no, into I, my head you, i know you're a great asset allocator and that's one of your fortes uh, in, in 30 years, asset allocation must have changed at certain different times of the market. You look at the interaction between macroeconomics yeah. and, and markets. At certain times, you're going to say, OK, too many bonds, because I think for the next two years, interest rates are going to go up and uh, yields are going to rise. And so you yes, shift it. Yes, but yes. the basic principles That's of asset allocation is, is diversification, but it, by, by tweaking it occasionally when circumstances dictate that you do. Totally, totally. I mean, funny enough, today I was cleaning out my desk 
as one does as you're about to bugger off. And I came across a document from 1995 written by James Capel, a wonderful doc called The Anatomy of a Cycle. And James Capel then went on to become, I think, swallowed up by HSBC many years ago. Anyway, my point is, is that that's just short of, or two years short of 30 years ago that I was interested in, very interested in macro, the whole asset allocation theory. So it's, it, it's tricky to get asset allocation right. I mean, it's, it's wonderful when you get it right, but it's bloody difficult. Some people give it up totally. They say it's not possible to, to sort of time the market asset classes, and therefore we're going to have a sort of a, a long-term strategic asset allocation. We're going to keep the same amount in bonds, equities throughout you know, 10-year period because it's too tricky to try and go a bit more, a bit less, etc. I, I live in a hope, I have lived always in a hope that I can add a little bit of value. I think on balance I've added a little bit of value, but but not as much as I, I like to pretend to myself. Um, but, uh, yeah, we've got some things right. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's tricky, but it's damn interesting. It's sort of a combination of politics, economics, uh, history, uh, finance, uh, you throw it all in the mix, and and you sort of then got to come up with essay views on on the different asset classes over time. Yes, and uh, you've obviously done that very well, Chris. Now um, you, you talked about uh, all sorts of inputs, so many inputs at the moment in markets in in so many different asset classes as well. Not just equities, which is the asset class that I talk about most in my podcast, but everywhere. How do you find the markets that you're leaving? Um. You know, they, they've been tricky because I've, the big thing I've got wrong in the last year, and um, my only solace is that I've been quite in quite good company, is that, um, and I think you and I have even spoken about this before, is that I, I expected the world's economies, the major economies of the world, let's call it the US and, and, and Europe, to have slowed down a long time ago in response to incredibly fast interest rate increases over the last 18 months, okay? But I was wrong. They've been far more resilient. Economies have been far more resilient than we thought they were going to be. There's some reasons for that. Um, uh, you know, belatedly, you work out that, um, well, two major reasons. One is that you forget the, how generous governments around the world were in terms of sending their citizens checks during COVID, and their savings rates went through the roof. So they've just been sort of using a whole lot of savings. And then also you forget that in the US, for example, everyone buys a house on a fixed rate mortgage. And so while interest rates go up, they don't, unless you sell your house and get a new mortgage, you're still paying the 2% and not the 8% currently. Okay. But anyway, that's water under the bridge. So I still think, but like a stuck record, that we will see a slowdown, a continued slowdown. We have seen some slowing of the global economies. I mean, there are a whole lot of variables I could point you towards, but um, we will see more. Whether we get this fabled soft landing, which markets have really bought into. I mean, a hell of a lot of senior people have thrown in the towel and said, listen, we're not going to get a recession. We're going to get slowing in growth, but we won't get any negative quarters of growth. I still don't buy that. I still buy fully the 91 uh, sort of base case scenario of a recession is quite soon upon us in, in quarter sort of um, one or two next year. It might be relatively mild. There are no massive economic imbalances to fix. But – but it's it's not likely that equities are going to love the prospect of um, slowing growth in the next quarter or two. Offsetting that, like a good two-handed economist, is that the markets come to the conclusion that interest rate hikes are over. 
And we really, we, we've had seven goes at this, by the way. We came to the conclusion six times before. This is our seventh time as a market. We're saying, okay, it's all over. But but this time we're right. And I, and I say that because the latest uh, inflation number in the U.S. was the sort of straw, the proverbial straw that broke the the hiking camel's back. Um, and it really looks like uh, the sort of inflation beast, um, whilst not being fully tamed yet, is on the way to being fully tamed. Um, and so you've got lower inter- prospect of lower interest rates, which is good, versus the prospect of lower growth, which is bad. And you get that traditional tussle between the two main variables in, in the equity markets. I don't think we're going to go anywhere in a hurry for a while. But at some stage, enough time will have lapsed and enough interest rates would have been cut that we're going to go off to the races again as the market starts to sniff the next economic upcycle. It'll probably happen in some time in 2024. Um, but uh, in the meantime, I'm afraid it's going to be swimming through treacle for a while longer. Yeah, the thing is that uh, everyone talking about, oh, the market's difficult at the moment. You look at the really long-term chart, and I'd, I'd say maybe five mm-hmm. years on the S&P, we're close to all-time record highs. If we were if we were 20% lower than where we are now, and suddenly yeah. everyone realised yeah. that inflation had peaked and was, was coming lower, it'll be more glacial mm-hmm. on its downside progression in the future because yeah. it was coming off a high base before. But it will keep on coming down, hopefully. So yeah. interest rates will come down. And if you were 20% lower now, that 20% would soon be uh, soon be snapped up by people that weren't long in the market. Yeah, but at the moment, yeah. we're, we're too high to race away. But I very, don't mind that. Very, let's, very. let's consolidate a bit and then start edging higher. That's much more palatable to me. Yeah. So what you're basically saying is that if you look at the valuation of the market, that sort of quite a lot of the, the, the market has come to the conclusion that we will get a gentle economic slowing. And that is built into the price of the market. If, if, if we had more anxiety about a hard landing, markets wouldn't be as expensive as they are right now. Does that sort of line up? With it really think? does. Everyone has had so many opportunities to sell. And a few people have sold. And a few people, a few days later, have said, this isn't working. There's too much buying. So they cover their shorts and, and away you go. So, yeah. yes, I, I do think so. I did, wasn't going to say it in quite that way. I'll say it in my layman's terms. But you've, you've summed it up quite nicely. Yes, it's exactly yeah. what I think. I mean, we don't know how slow the economy is going to be. You know, I always say that like interest rate hikes are a bit like having tequila shots at a bar. You, you never know you know, when you've you've had enough, but it all of a sudden becomes very obvious to everyone. All of a sudden, you can and everyone else can see that you've had too many. I, I think it's a bit like rate hikes are a bit like that. And, and we don't know if they've sort of done enough or too much yet, but we will know this time next year. We'll certainly know. Okay, so what do we do? We, um, we just... Just, just carry on regardless. And in, in fact, if you're under yeah. in interest rate sensitive areas like equities, for example, and certain types of equities within the equity space, then maybe start nibbling away. Is that what you would be saying? I think you need to be you need to be quite defensively positioned right now. I mean, I don't think markets are that expensive that you're going to lose a hell of a lot of money. But, but the soft landing thesis is pretty much consensus. And if it turns out to be a little bit harder, I mean, all. All hard landings start out as a soft landing, eh? and um, if the sort of uh, if the economic slowdown is a bit harder than we're currently pricing into the market, then I think we could you need to you need to protect capital for a bit. The sort of emphasis right now should be on 
in the equity you've got, it should be quite defensively positioned. It should be quite uh, it's sort of high quality companies that uh, that are steady growers, uh, that are profitable, that are uh, in predictable earning streams. Like you know, I don't know what are the what are the traditional defensives: pharma, food, tobacco, uh, defense. You know, those are the sort of <laughs> Tele- telecoms, those are the traditional uh, defensive ones. Defense. No, I think right. so. People, but, but, people say the best, the, the best way, to, one of the best defensive sectors is is look at uh, companies that are regularly getting uh, orders from various militaries around the world. But anyway, you probably wouldn't be yeah. allowed to invest in those yeah. sort of companies anyway. You know which you know which sector really boggles my brain right now. Go on. Is the oil sector? Yes. If you'd said to me a year ago or two years ago that that two of the world's major oil-producing regions are going to be beset with quite serious political, geopolitical instability, witness Russia, which is a big global oil supply, and clearly the Middle East with what's going on in, in Israel, and yet the oil price wouldn't budge. It wouldn't actually take any notice of that. I would have said you're crazy. So the fact that the oil price is only $80 a barrel in the face of what I've just described must mean that the underlying demand and supply fundamental dynamics for the oil market are very weak. Otherwise, it would be a hell of a lot higher. But that is a risk. I mean, we could, if if for some reason, you know, we wake up and the oil price is 50% higher three months from now because all hell's breaking loose in the Middle East and Iran joins a war and things like that. I mean, that's that's a big market risk. But without that happening yet, I'm, I'm amazed the oil price is not a hell of a lot higher. Yeah, you can see how sensitive it is to the Middle East because when it first uh, became apparent that there was a hostage deal imminent, that's when on that day yeah. the oil price fell. Well, last time I looked at it before I went to bed, it was 4.3% lower across West Texas and and Brent. So yeah. it really yeah. is. And I'm yeah. thinking, well, okay, Israel against Hamas. There's no oil in the area, but I understand the implications of Iran coming in and it's becoming a more of a regional conflict. But I still think it was overdone. Anyway, oil is a mystery mm. to me and always has been. Um, it's a tricky one to. It's a tricky commodity to get right. Oil, it really, really is. I don't know. With some tricky people in charge of it, I also <laughs> have to say. I want to just. Uh, you, if you're about to cut me off, I want to say one last I'm not, I'm about, not. about the labour market. You know, at, at any one stage in your career, there, there's always a sort of like a an it number that you've got to focus that the market focuses on. And it changes over time, whatever it is. But but right now, the the focus of the market, I think sensibly, is the U.S. labor market. So because the unemployment rate sort of bottomed at about 3.5%, and and the U.S. labor market has been unbelievably steady in the face of, as I say, uh, um, sort of higher interest rates, etc. But that's the key thing to look at. Look at all the variables around the U.S. labor market. If it's like the non-farm payrolls, the what we call the, um, the weekly uh, initial uh, unemployment claims, uh, the quits ratio, the jolts, the job openings and labor turnover surveys. There are a whole lot of things that you can look at to get a sense of how fast the U.S. labor market is slowing. And if it just continues to slow at a very measured, orderly pace, well, then we're okay. But if it looks like it's getting a bit disorderly, the markets are going to hate it. One of your very clever friends in London during an interview 
said, I said, well, look, you know, it's, the US economy must be doing really, really well because the unemployment rate is close to a 50-year yes. low and initial jobless claims, yes. all the figures all come out, anything between 200 and 400,000 new jobs created Great. outside of Great. the agricultural sector. And he said, yeah, that's all very well. And we look at all these things. But what we do here in my team is we look at jobless claims weekly. He said, as soon as we see a trend in rising jobless claims every week, not just a, a blip here and there, but a steady trend yeah. of rising jobless claims, then that is when we know that there is a recession around the corner. And that I is think when. That is, I yeah. think that guy is 100% right. He is. If I were to focus on one variable, it would be exactly that one. Every Thursday afternoon, the U.S. data series or department comes out with that number. And labor is normally a lagging indicator, but that is an incredibly timely indicator of people that are standing up in front of the proverbial glass shield and saying, please, can I have my, my unemployment check because I've just been made redundant. And the fluctuation in that number is a very good real-time indicator of labor in the U.S., and that's a key number. So whoever that was, I think he's damn smart. Good. You are damn smart as well in my eyes. And, oh, um, <laughs> and obviously you're good fun. That's the other thing. Some, some interviews um, can be um, fairly stodgy. I mean, they impart wisdom, but I don't listen to things unless there's a little bit of uh, lightheartedness and anecdotes and that sort of thing. You've got, you've got it all, all in one, so I shall definitely miss our quite frequent chats. Too uh, kind. Chris, too kind. I know. I had it written down before I started the interview. I was, uh, <laughs> It wasn't, sp- <laughs> wasn't spontaneous. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Chris, but I think if, you know, you don't know where you're going to be in a year's time or, or, t- or two years' time, no. but maybe there's something that is podcast-worthy and maybe we could revive our old uh, on-air relationship and do something. Who we knows? That would be fun, wouldn't it? Uh, with absolute pleasure. I'll, I'll meet you in a pub first and we'll plan it. Oh, we'll yeah. have a long planning session. Okay. Very, very long. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a stickler for Good planning. Look, I don't know where I'm going to be, but I do know I'm, I can't. I'm terrible at golf. I'm an, I'm naturally ungifted, so I've got a lot of work to do there. I love fly fishing, so I'm going to go around the world fly fishing. I love cycling, playing tennis. I've got to go visit various family members overseas and um, and just count my lucky stars that that uh, that I'm able to do this, man. I, I don't for a second think that this is not a privileged position to be in. And, just bloody grateful. You make your own luck, uh, Freund, as we all know. Chris Freund is soon to be the ex-portfolio uh, manager in the balanced and equity capability at 91 in Cape Town. And that was one for the road. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organisation, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.